Thank you, Scott. Good evening, everyone. We have an amazing uh, collection of people this evening. Um, I want to welcome everyone to Narrative Medicine Rounds. Uh, my name is Deepu Gowda. I'm a general internist here at Columbia, and I'm the course director of Foundations of Clinical Medicine's tutorials course. Any of our students in the room here? A few? Okay, great. So glad to see you guys here. This is the course where we teach the students the physical exam and uh, how to do the medical interview at the bedside. Um, Dr. Kleinman, who is our speaker this evening, has had a tremendous influence on our course and really our curriculum as a whole. Dr. Kleinman is one of our most important national figures in cross-cultural psychiatry and in medical anthropology. His influence on medical practice and medical education really cannot be overstated. He's been one of the most important and effective advocates for honoring the patient's voice to inform the practice of medicine, but also informing how medicine is organized and delivered. He's been jointly appointed at the Harvard Medical School as well as the Department of Anthropology at Harvard. And in 2011, he was appointed the position of Harvard College Professor. He's the author of countless articles, six books, has co-edited dozens others. His professional accomplishments and honors are tremendous, as we all know. I first had the chance to read Dr. Kleinman's book, The Illness Narratives, when I was a college student majoring in anthropology. For me, the wonder of anthropology was that it wasn't an, about an accumulation of, of, of facts or data. It was about providing us lenses that we could look through to view the world in a different way. And every now and then, looking through that lens would change the way that I would view the world, my understanding of the world. And reading Kleinman was an experience or enterprise in shifts. In the very first line of the illness narratives, he writes, when I use the word illness in this book, I shall mean something fundamentally different from what I mean when I write disease. By invoking the term illness, I mean to conjure up the innately human experiences of symptoms and suffering. Illness refers to how the sick person and members of the family or wider social network perceive, live with, and respond to symptoms and disability. In this most elegant and powerful concepts, he reminds us that no two persons with a given disease will have the same experience. He argues that understanding disease is clearly an important part of taking care of patients. But he also argues that it's the illness narrative or the patient's voice that is often neglected and lost in the modern practice of medicine. So you see the lens that he's been urging us to look through this whole time is the lens of the patient perspective. In a series of prompts that he is, that are often described as the Kleinman questions, he gives us very practical tools on how students and clinicians can embody some of these anthropological approaches to understand the patient's illness narrative. And these are questions that we ask our own students to learn as well and to use. The questions include, what do you call this problem? Or what do you think causes this problem? And the one I think is particularly revealing, what do you fear most about this sickness? For one patient, it might be the fear of being in pain. Another patient, the existential uh, suffering about impending death. And another patient, 
the fear of what happens when I leave, what happens to my husband or wife, what will happen to them when I leave. And you see, Dr. Kleinman's scholarship throughout the years has drawn our attention to that important gulf that we all recognize between the advancement of medical technologies and the reality of how the most vulnerable in our society are often treated by our healthcare systems, the sick, the disabled, the dying. And we start to understand that Dr. Kleinman's particular brand of scholarship is not detached and purely academic. This is a more engaged type of scholarship. He asks the question, what is medicine for? And in doing so, he asks us all to take stock of what it is and envision what it could be. How could it serve our communities in a higher way? And in doing so also, he nudges us towards taking action. Not only to observe the cultures in which we live, but to take a part in actively shaping those cultures. It is truly a great honor and a personal thrill to welcome to Columbia in the program in narrative medicine, Dr. Arthur DeClendon. Thank you for that lovely introduction, and it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, just to lighten what is a, 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 a tough subject, we're going to talk about uh, suffering and illness and care. Um, let me just say that I'm a New Yorker, and uh, I've been at Harvard for 37 years, but I've always regarded Cambridge as the most distant suburb of New York. <laughs> uh, I've asked myself um, why I have continued with this subject for uh, such a long time. Actually, it's 40 years ago this year that I set out my first publications on um, uh, illness, suffering, and caregiving. And um, uh, I celebrated it, actually, in the, in the New England Journal of Medicine last spring with a piece. And it reminds me of the story. Uh, uh, and I say this pointedly, of the, it reminds me of a story, just uh, bear with me on this one a little bit, of a, a harmonica player. It was the first harmonica player to be asked by the New York Philharmonic to play as a soloist. And he decides to play the Bach preludes. And he practices and practices and practices, and finally the day comes for the concert. He gives the concert. And there's a standing ovation. And in the back of the room, a small voice cries out, play it again. <laughs> and he responds, ladies and gentlemen, I'm so, so deeply um, uh, impressed and so much enjoy this response. I will play one of the preludes again. And he plays that prelude again. Again, standing ovation. And in the back of the room, the same small voice, play it again. To which he responds, I'm just so delighted with this response, but um, I'm too exhausted, I can't play it again. And the small voice replies, you'll play it again until you get it right. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's my, uh, that's what I'm trying to do, so to get it right. Uh, so, um, uh, these are the places where I try to get it right. Um, my first book, actually, uh, uh, based on my field research in uh, Taiwan, 
uh, was Patients and Healers in the Context of Culture, in which I tried to um, ask the question, what distinguishes the doctor-patient relationship in different forms of healing systems, in biomedicine, in traditional Chinese medicine, even in religious uh, healing systems? Um, uh, not the, uh, uh, the next book, but the book that's most relevant here was, of course, The Illness Narratives, which um, was interesting because uh, uh, in the last decade, it's been brought to my attention that virtually every major medical school in the United States uses part of the illness narratives to teach medical students. So since, as you'll see, I've been concerned with the disabling function of medical education when it comes to caregiving, I now realize that I have a role to play on the <laughs> disabling side as well. Uh, 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 in rethinking psychiatry, I, which is my field, I'm a psychiatrist, and I practiced psychiatry for a long time until I had so many faculty at Harvard I found it uncomfortable going to a meeting and discovering that the meeting was being chaired by someone I was taking care of. Um, but the, uh, uh, I tried to ask the question there, supposing we started from the social perspective and asked about the cultural categories we work with in medicine and clinical care. How do we get from there and from the cultural categories that patients and families work with to the actual experience that the patient has and the doctor has? And my purpose there was, was not to exonerate medicine from culture, but to argue that culture has its significance because it works in the world altogether and affects everything that we do. I was very fortunate in the 1990s in the late 90s, being asked by my alma mater, Stanford, to give the Tanner Lectures. Um, and I gave the Tanner Lectures. And in thinking about the Tanner Lectures, I realized that my illness narrative interest, as I'm going to show you in a bit, was predicated on the idea that the narrative gave incredible insight into what the experience of um, symptoms and of uh, 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 distress and of a disease process was about. And that, it, that the, for me, the centerpiece to examine was the experience, both the experience of the person who's sick and the experience of the caregiver. We'll come back to that in a minute. Then in the um, same period of time with, a, with several colleagues, I introduced an idea of social suffering, or the idea that what would happen if we put together health problems and social problems. But we know, if you look at the research literature on social disparities, that um, health problems and social problems run together. It might be an immodest claim of causality to say that social problems always cause health problems. They don't. But they contribute powerfully to this, so much so that one could say that we could look at chronic illness and infectious disease as part of social suffering in the same way that we look at poverty and family breakdown and marginalization and put them together and ask the question, how does that affect how we respond to people? Then in um, What Really Matters, which I'm going to show you in a moment, um, uh, I uh, wrote a book that I tried to examine uh, people's lives in the context of danger and uncertainty as they turned 
on events that were embodied often, emotionally resonant, but what I came to recognize as morally important. And that's the case I'm going to try to make for you tonight. That to understand illness and to understand caregiving is to understand a moral process. And I'm going to distinguish that from ethics. I'm going to, I'm going to show, try to show, that the moral and the ethical are distinctive. And then in a book, Deep China, which came out uh, a couple of years ago, my, my former students and I, almost all of whom are professors in China today, because that's where I do a lot of my research, um, tried to raise just the kind of questions I've talked about now with you in the context of what's happened to the world's largest country as it's gone through an era of unprecedented change. And uh, uh, on the one side, the greatest poverty reduction prosperity generating system known in the world. On the other side, an enormous disaster for environment, for environmental health, and the like. And then um, most recently, this year, um, I, I came out with a book with my uh, with several former students, uh, Jim Kim, who's now the president of the World Bank, Paul Farmer, who in many ways is the icon of, of global health today, um, called Reimagining Global Health, which um, asks the question of what happens when we make caregiving central to global health? Global health we've often thought of in public health terms in the area of prevention, prevention of, um, of, uh, of uh, infectious diseases. But what happens when we begin to take away that condescending view, that is that Africa and uh, Asia and um, Latin America have infectious diseases, but we have chronic illnesses and all the kinds of problems that require attention to narratives and attention to care. What would happen if we looked at global health that way? Then we wouldn't be condescending toward other countries. And we'd ask the question, not just how much volume, that's what's the access to care, which is basically the central question of global health today, but rather, what's the quality of care? And, um, and my own sense is that we come out of that with questions about what the quality of care is in our own country. And again, I'm going to come to this, but to make a long story short, I think we have no measures of quality. We do not measure quality of care. We don't even know how to measure quality of care, not just in global health, but here, right here, where we are. So the illness narratives. Um, because uh, it's received so much attention today, I, I'm not going to say much about it. it you know, the, 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 the large emphasis I made was to distinguish illness and disease. And call illness, and this was based on the, on the, I didn't discover, I didn't create this distinction. It was made by Alvin Feinstein, who was at that time a great epidemiologist at Yale, but used it only in research. I popularized the idea and changed it somewhat. Um, and defined illness as an innately human experience of symptoms and suffering, how the sick person and members of the family or wider social network perceive, live with, and respond to symptoms and disability, and try to contrast that to disease, what the practitioner creates in the recasting of illness in terms of theories of disorder. And the argument I made here is that um, disease is not just biomedical. Disease is also in complementary and alternative practice and in any field, in any profession, 
of medicine or, or, or in the healing uh, uh, setting. Uh, I think I'm going to skip this and just go to the explanatory models because you, you had those introduced and, and say that um, my purpose in the explanatory models was very simple, introducing this, this set of questions. I presented this once to a very discerning audience, um, my four grandchildren, who are one between, one between um, uh, nine and 12, and they said to me, is this what you do? <laughs> uh, the questions seem like ones we would ask in the fourth grade. And so, I, anyway, I said, well, you know, we're just catching up. And so, uh, the explanatory model questions, in some sense, were meant to do two things. To um, systematize questions that doctors used to ask, many doctors uh, used to ask. And secondly, to try to um, distill from an ethnography or a social history, what are the important questions that an anthropologist or a medical historian ask that allow them to look at a big picture, a whole culture, or a whole set of historical changes, and boil it down to a set of questions. And so this was a bowdlerization of ethnography in many ways. And my, I can tell you that um, my anthropology colleagues have, have, have spent decades criticizing me for doing this, uh, but um, have recognized over time that there's a practical reason for this. And so I want to say that the explanatory model questions get at some very important aspects of what illness narratives and illness experiences are about that were captured best in my view, by Aristotle's idea of phronesis. So Aristotle distinguished three forms of knowledge. Techni, which was technical rationality, the rationality each of us gets as we are in a profession that allows us to operate technically. Episteme, which is epistemology, our knowledge of how knowledge is generated. Um, and third, and for Aristotle most important, phronesis, or practical wisdom. Aristotle said practical wisdom was the most important form of knowledge. And that was the kind of knowledge that let you get on with life, let you endure, let you survive, let you succeed, let you fail and still go on. The kinds of things we associate with life. The explanatory models were meant to be a way of eliciting the phronesis of the illness experience in a practical way that would be useful both for patients' families and for practitioners. In the same way, um, my interest was in using something like the explanatory models uh, to get at the importance of culture in the clinic. And here, the most important development in this area has actually um, been developed by one of your colleagues, uh, who I had the great honor of teaching many years ago, uh, who's professor of psychiatry here, Roberto Luis Fernandez, who's developed the so-called cultural formulation 
which is a way of using the idea of the, the explanatory models and what is at stake in people's um, experience as a way of understanding how culture affects things like um, uh, the doctor-patient relationship, uh, adherence, um, uh, the long course of a chronic illness, etc. Now what really matters for me was, in my view, uh, a breakthrough uh, uh, work. And so, you know, if you're, if you're an intellectual and you're, you're, you're writing, um, there is a tendency to repeat yourself. And um, with uh, 40 books and about 450 articles, I've repeated myself so often that if I could take back 100, I would take back 100. But what really matters was not a repetition of anything, but a um, effort at getting at what I thought was the existential core of experience. So here's an anthropologist. It's very unusual to have an anthropologist today talk about the existential core of experience. We're usually talking about cultural differences. But I believe that in the health domain, in the, air, in the domain of illness, disability, uh, caregiving, we can actually talk about existential uh, uh, experiences. The human condition is no better represented than in our understanding of what really matters for people. And so what really matters chronicle the stories of ordinary people and what mattered most to them in normal and extraordinary times. It's a book about moral experience and how individuals and groups come to grips with very real dangers and uncertainties. In fact, one of the arguments I make in What Really Matters is that we systematically underplay how dangerous and uncertain life is. Um, since this book came out just before the financial meltdown in the US, um, uh, it was an interesting time as the book uh, uh, over, began to have a history and, and, and developed a readership to see people agreeing more and more with the idea of how dangerous and uncertain the world is. I don't know if you can think your way back to 2004, 2005, 2006, just before the financial meltdown, but that was the heyday of uh, the idea of risk management. Okay. The idea that there was no risk that couldn't be managed. Those dangers and uncertainties really are what make life matter as much as our own mortality does. They define what it means to be human, and they show not just where we are headed, but where our world is headed. And it is, this was a book about people who, in the midst of it all, were trying to live, and here you have to stay with me for a bit so I make this point clear, a moral life. You're going to see that I have a different take on what it means to say that someone is trying to live a moral life. So to give some conceptual background to caregiving, which is where I'm taking us now, um, let me just introduce some ideas that have been basic to my research and my, and my uh, uh, theoretical work. One is the idea of experience. Experience is characterized, experience is the flow of our interactions as we engage others, as we remember them, et cetera. 
And it's characterized by an orientation of overwhelming practicality. Overwhelming practicality. And that practicality is there because of the real dangers and uncertainties that we face. I'm not by any means the first person to say this. This is, you could almost say this is the truth that came out of phenomenological research. This is William James's point in the great principles of psychology and in the varieties of religious experience. Many authors have made this point. And maybe Michael Oakeshott said it best in his book on experience, about this overwhelming practicality in experience. But that practicality is also tied up with the fact that experience is fundamentally moral. Our interactions are fundamentally moral. They're moral because there are things that are really at stake. I don't mean things that we're just generally interested in, or things that um, we say, uh, boy, that's kind of exciting, or, or that's a little disturbing. I mean things that matter so much we usually cannot say them. They're things that, that can't be stated. They're the fact that you're in a group of physicians in a private practice in which the fundamental practice is really about generating money and you can't say that because otherwise you'll be saying that the market is more important than caregiving. But in fact, if we look at people's practices, that's what the practices tell us. I'm talking about a research group in which it becomes clear if you look at the practices that the actual research is more important than the caregiving, though no one will say that, or unless you have to have a couple of martinis to say that. But, the, but because it's too dangerous to say, it, it runs against our commitments officially to caregiving. Think of how it runs directly against what we regard medical ethics to be. So these things that are deeply at stake are not seen by asking someone, what do you value? They're seen in looking at practices. What do you do? As William James said, um, life is a verb, not a noun. It's the doing. It's the engaging. And I'm going to make the case that this is what really illness experience and caregiving are about. They are about active practices. That's the essence of experience. But we have to recognize that experience, and here's where anthropology becomes very important in my view, and history as well, that experience it doesn't just happen neat in the same way you can go up to a bar and order a single malt neat. Okay. Experience occurs always in a context, in a local world. And my contribution in this area has been to say that these local worlds can be defined as moral because they're about the interactions between people over what is really at stake. Now, I don't think I really need to spend any time on the dangers. We're all familiar with the dangers. They're, they relate to health, they relate to accidents, they relate to economic conditions, job stability, poverty, chronic and degenerative diseases, catastrophes, etc. But I do have to say something about the moral. So I want to make a distinction for us very quickly between moral experience and moral life. So moral experience is what takes place in these local worlds, a clinic, a neighborhood, a village, a network. Moral experience 
is, um, mor is moral, experience is moral because life is about values, just being alive, negotiating important relations with others, doing work that means something to us. Living in some particular local place indicates that moral experience is inescapable. And this is, by the way, what distinguishes medicine and anthropology on the one side from philosophy. For philosophers, it's possible to write about a view from nowhere. For physicians and for anthropologists, there's no view from nowhere. It's always a somewhere that that view is coming from. But moral life is not the same as moral experience. Moral experience is what's happening in that network. But moral life is the life of the person. It's the person's life tied to moral imagination, responsibility, self-criticism, engagement. And in moral life, we make judgments about moral experience. Now, trying to live a moral life can lead to the awareness that moral experience is wrong. Some people may say that what's happening around them requires criticism, protest, efforts to do the right thing. Many collaborate, and let's be honest about it. Most of the time, all of us collaborate, whether we're willing to say that or not. We collaborate in these local worlds, doing what others do carrying on business as such. When I uh, headed a consultation liaison service, a big one at the University of Washington in Seattle, we used to call it cutting the meat, okay? Getting through things it was a very uh, distancing, anti-human term. Um, so we can be critical of what we do and the settings we're in. And we have several possibilities. The one that's usually thrown up to us is to be a moral hero. Um, I've been teaching for uh, almost 50 years. I've had thousands of students. Very few have been moral heroes. I'm not a moral hero. None of my family members are moral heroes. None of my colleagues that I know are moral heroes. The few students I've had who are moral heroes are extraordinarily exceptional. Most of us, however, can aim at the very least to be anti-heroic. And here, the literary critic Victor Bromberg at Princeton has written uh, wonderfully on the anti-heroic role. And to be anti-heroic simply means to perturb and disturb the local moral world. We may not be able to radically confront it. Um, we may not be able to change it directly, but we can question it, perturb the taken for granted, disturb it. In fact, as I mentioned earlier, most people do nothing. And that is reflected experientially in their sense of their moral life. Thus people come to collaborate in things they find unethical in spite of their private reservations and may later on develop feelings of guilt and misplaced loyalty and what I should have added to this was cynicism. Cynicism, the most dangerous of all values tied to emotions. Now, I said before that the moral and the ethical are not the same. Because that local moral experience that we are upset by could be malign in the radical sense. This is the moral experience, let's say, 
that was created by and contributed to by Dr. Mengele in, in Nazi medicine. That would be a perfectly good example of a moral experience. They were committed, but committed to the worst of values. Um, so the moral and the ethical are not the same. The ethical is our aspiration to go beyond the moral. It's our recognition, hey, I'm critical of this. What would it be like? That's the imagination. To think of a local world that was different than mine. What, how do we change that? All these are critical to the experience of illness and care, as I'm now going to, to show. I think I'm going to skip the social suffering. So I, want to, I want time to, to really get to caregiving. OK, let's take caregiving. So I think, first of all, we, we start with the term. It's extraordinarily important to start with this in the broadest sense. It begins with the idea of cares. Okay? Caregiving is about cares. It's about worries. It's about being troubled. Why? Because we're, gonna, we're trying to help someone in need. And it begins with that set of worries and troubles. Secondly, caregiving is about taking care. Before we get to give care, it's about taking care. It's about taking care of the way we address the world. Um, and that taking care is something over the course of our lives that we learn. Almost all of us who've gone through adolescence learn somehow to take care. It usually happens with a very late adolescence. I'm thinking of myself going up to about 30. <laughs> um, and, and then we get to caregiving itself, which is... Um, it's important to make a distinction here between professional and lay care. So what I'm going to say now about caregiving is how it looks ethnographically when you actually study the lived experience of caregiving. Um, but it's distinctive in lay and professional care, and I'm going to come back to that. So. Caregiving is both the individual and collective human practice of protecting, practically supporting, offering solidarity, including physical, emotional, interpersonal, and moral assistance. It's obviously closely linked to the process of care receiving. So if we think of the patient or the family member who's sick, not just as having the illness, but as a care receiver, it's critical to tell us something about what caregiving is. <laughs> there are various levels of caregiving. Um, that I'm, I'm writing a book about this. It's not necessary to think too much about this. Now, what are the core tasks of caregiving? Because here, this is what I want to emphasize. I really want to emphasize that caregiving begins with an understanding of the corporal tasks of care. Anyone in the audience who knows who in 1869 wrote about the corporal task of care in her notes to nurses. Florence Nightingale. Florence Nightingale set out what the corporal, she called the corporal tasks of care were about. They were about the most practical assistance. Feeding, bathing, touching, helping to ambulate, assisting in every way. I learned about this 
much less from being a professional caregiver over four or five decades, rather from being the caregiver for my wife who died of early onset Alzheimer's disease two and a half years ago, by the fact that I was her primary caregiver, her family caregiver. I learned about these practical tasks, these corporal tasks, these embodied tasks. But you know, physicians are also uh, not excluded from the corporal tasks. Physicians who work in hospices participate in these. Physicians who take care of chronic patients that they get to know well about a disease and put their arms on a patient to reassure them, who touch a patient even for the first time that they meet them to deal with terrible pain. That corporal act is part of caregiving, is a central part of caregiving. Acknowledgement is crucial to caregiving. The great French ethicist, um, theologian, Emmanuel Levinas, said that ethics precedes epistemology in human affairs. All human relationships begin with a face-to-face -face relationship. Nothing could be closer to this than the doctor-patient relationship or the family member, sick person relationship. We begin with the acknowledgement of the other as a human being, as someone who matters to us. This is today one of the fundamental problems in professional practice. You go to China today, I'm sure there are many who are not going to believe me when I tell you this. In many hospitals in China, doctors and nurses wear helmets today. Why do they wear helmets? Because they're attacked by patients. Why are they attacked by patients? Because there's fundamental distrust of the doctor-patient relationship. There's the sense that doctors are out simply to make money and not to help, that they can't, patients can't trust doctors. And they end up with, after bad things happen, attacking their, their doctors. When you ask, what is it that made you feel that you couldn't trust your doctor? It begins with the idea, no one acknowledged me. I wasn't there as a person. I was treated as if I were a thing. So acknowledgement, affirmation, affirming that you are having an illness experience and I am there with you in the illness experience. That is so central to eliciting an illness narrative and responding to it. We're in this, in the experience together. That affirmation of the other, you're sick, I'm there with you. Emotional support of all kinds and moral solidarity and responsibility, by which I mean um, basically being there even when there's nothing else that can be done except being there. Lots of caregiving today happens with people who are comatose, who are seriously cognitively impaired, impaired to the level of very serious dementias. In that setting, being there, that moral solidarity is crucial to what caregiving is, and it's crucial to what narratives of medicine are telling us caregiving is about. Though there are other things here, and I, the only one I want you to think about is presence. Presence. When you look at family members, when you read the narratives that are flowing out today, this is the great age of family accounts of illness. We'll look back on this 
as a golden age, the last 10 years of family accounts of illness. Incredible writers, incredible family experiences. When you look back at them, you'll see that central to all of them is the idea of presence. Being there existentially when there's nothing, as I said, practically that can be done and hope itself is extinguished. That fact that you're not mechanical, that you're not treating a thing, that you're there in yourself, just like we're here together in ourselves, that humanness, that is the essence of what the medical humanity should be focused on, presence. How do we get presence? How do we sustain it? How do we develop it? So let's tie caregiving to the moral aspects of experience that I talked about. And we can see caregiving as an existential act that defines our humanity and our relationship with others. It is one of the things that really matters. It's a basic response to the context of danger and uncertainty that helps to define our human condition. For many caregivers, family caregivers and professional caregivers, in practice, caregiving is not a burden, though that's how it's configured today by economists and health policy people who have come to dominate the healthcare debate. In fact, let's be really honest here and say that in this debate we've had about healthcare, it has entirely left out caregiving. Okay. We've just gone through a national debate on healthcare that has had no voice of caregiving in it. So for many people, caregiving is not a burden, but a way of being in the world, a way of living, uh, a way of enduring. In a global culture of cynicism, where there's a sense of misplaced loyalty, caregiving is frequently perceived as one of the truly worthy acts of moral, of ethical commitment. I think that's the great privilege for us, for all of us who've been caregivers, whether professional caregivers or family caregivers. That sense that in an age of cynicism and a sense of misplaced loyalty, we're, we have invested in something truly worthy. Now here I want to say some things that may be upsetting to saying this in a medical school, okay? And I've given this talk um, at many, many medical schools in the United States. On a practical level, caregiving has relatively little to do with medicine and even the other helping professions. If you simply quantify where most of care, as I define it, is done, it's done in the context of families. Most of it is done by women. And when we look for the input into that system, it's often the caregiving is done on the level of immigrant women who are poor. In, in my town, in Boston, um, most of the care in hospitals like the Mass General or Brigham and Women's is done by Haitians. Okay. If you look into families who have home health aides, the home health aides come out of the Irish community. They've recently come from Ireland. Families for, who for generations have provided family care. Uh, they come out of the Haitian community. They come out of uh, other immigrant communities, often African communities in Boston, actually. Um, I just want to give some pictures of caregiving to make sure one will say that. A hospital, you got a hospital, there's usually someone accompanying a patient. Not always, and this is somewhat class related, but there is a presence of someone accompanying someone else. 
Caregiving involves self-care and self-realization. I show this because so often we treat the demented as if they can't participate in care, they can't be care receivers. But this is the great Swiss artist, Willem Untermüller, who chronicled his own experience of Alzheimer's disease in his paintings. He painted his own Alzheimer's experience. History plays a big role here. Much of caregiving historically was in the context of the church, and um, nuns played a central role in the medieval period. Uh, Rembrandt portrays the domesticity of caregiving, how frequently caregiving is taking place in the domestic space of the bedroom. How caregiving elicits a response from us is also shown in a magnificent Rembrandt painting uh, his great painting of um, uh, Ephraim Bueno, a great Portuguese Jewish doctor in Amsterdam in the 17th century. You can see it, look at Bueno's face and the way that, um, that Rembrandt wanted to bring that human sensitivity out. Sir Luke Fildes, at the end of the 19th century in his great painting of the doctor, which many of you know, also got the sense of caregiving. Here's the idea of cares with the actual giving of care. Limited amount that the physician can do for a young girl who's in a fever, maybe with a deadly disease. But being there, thinking through these things, worrying through them, and doing some of the caring was what medicine was about. In the broader sense of caregiving, I think Rembrandt's idea of the Jewish bride um, is a very wonderful one. The idea of that we care for each other, that caregiving is central to what life is about. That in this regard, medicine is a dimension of life itself. Or as Picasso showed in his picture of a sick woman at the bedside where the head of the patient and the head of the uh, uh, person at the bedside are fused. Caregiving, rather than being depicted as uh, sickness or illness as an in individual experience, is most often an interpersonal experience. That's most beautifully shown in the Western tradition, most powerfully in terms of its influence shown in the Pieta, the idea of the dead Christ in the arms of the Virgin with the idea that care is in the space between them. Or in the African-American tradition, the idea of the response to being crucified, the idea of slavery as crucifixion, and care as the response to be time on the cross. Caregiving centrally in, the, in a family setting here are poor women in Lesotho dealing with patients with MDRTB who are going to die in that space, if you ask where is the suffering, where is the caregiving, it's in that transpersonal, that interpersonal space. Now, I often like to show these pictures. I'm not going to talk about the, the one on um, uh, the owl, uh, which has a, which is from the Chinese tradition. Let me just focus on the Picasso head of a medical, this is the only time we know that Picasso painted the head of a medical student. <laughs> How many medical students in the audience? Any medical students? Just raise your hands. Okay. So here's what Picasso's idea was. His idea was that you 
come into medicine with both eyes open, that you're awestruck by the privilege medicine gives you to engage the illness experience. And medical school closes one eye. In fact, Picasso went to, so far as to maybe suggest that both eyes eventually close, but at least at this point, only one eye is closed. Now think about that. So one eye is open to the experience, drawn into the experience of suffering, drawn into the narrative of the illness, drawn into the responding to caregiving, and one eye closes. Now it closes, we know, in part for good reasons, any of us who have been clinicians. It closes in part to give us critical distance, a, a clinical distance, which, for example, Osler said was absolutely crucial. If you're going to take care of patients, you had to have a distance, some degree of distance. But he also said that that distance had to be balanced with compassion, affirmation, acknowledgement. What happens in medical school, from um, uh, my perspective on caregiving, is that medical school is as disabling as it is enabling. We have tremendous ability to enable students. You're all going to be enabled technologically. You're going to come out really competent technically, and you're going to be able to do many things against the pathophysiology of disease, and that's great. Okay? But let me tell you right now, whether you recognize it or not, you're systematically being disabled. Okay? Right now, you're being disabled. We have studies, the first of which we have uh, ones, many that followed up and replicated the findings, that show that fourth-year students compared to first-year students, thank God the fourth-year students do better than first-year students on the technical side of a clinical interview. Thank God. <laughs> but the first-year students actually do better than the fourth-year students on every other aspect of the interview. The psychosocial aspect of the interview, the family, history, name all those sides that have to do with care that I've just gone through, that get you into the moral space of care. We're disabling you in some way. And that's a very sad thing for those of us who are medical educators to tell you that, because there must be something we're doing that's contributing uh, to this. And we've got to figure out how to get around it. And my own feeling is that this program, as, as the leading program in the world in, in narrative medicine, can be seen in a big movement that's occurring today within medicine of the medical humanities, aimed at trying to do something about this disabling that takes place trying to perturb and disturb it and do something about it. Now, one of the, I want to suggest that, there, that having invested so much of my life in the area that many of you have invested your lives, professional lives, which is on the meaning of illness, on the meaning of it, I want to suggest that there are some limits also to illness narratives and a focus on meanings. Um, one is that um, often much of this in the past has been physician-centric. It's been the medical student or the attending or the physician writer who does this, and I've contributed to this. But what we've had happen in recent, more recent times is an efflorescence of contributions by families and sick individuals themselves, which have balanced this picture and given a caregiving-centric or a family-centered or 
patient-centered perspective, which is not the same at all as the physician-centered perspective. And we need to take both into account. Um, family caregivers often contribute narratives that are somewhat different, different in their focus um, as new patients than physician narratives. Now recently, uh, uh, one, uh, a very f fine uh, writer at NYU, a physician, Danielle Ofri, wrote a book that I reviewed in The Lancet called What Doctors Feel, How Emotions Affect the Practice of Medicine. And while the book, I thought, was made for a marvelous read, there were some real problems with it that we could learn from in our work. One of them was the problem of reifying a distinction between the worlds of doctors and patients as if those worlds were existentially unbridgeable, as if the illness and the disease could not be brought together. That's a, that is a problem that's problematic. And, and not getting at the sense that the world of the patient, the world of the family, may be much more fragmented, complicated, than any narrative from a physician's perspective that claims a kind of closure, completeness. Remember, Henry James said, all of life is incomplete. So the question is, how can medical writing adequately texture the complexity of experience and relations between patients and practitioners? That's a question for you. I have no answer to this, but I recognize it as an important example. I want to suggest one focus, and that's a focus on enduring. You know, we're, the, we're in the age of resilience. Everyone's supposed to be resilient. It's, uh, you know, it's like when you hear it, you you want to put your hand over your wallet. It's like, uh, uh, and, you, know, you know, in America, if you want to see the biggest American flag, where do you go? You go to a used car dealership, right? This is the, resilience in my view is the, is the equivalent in psychology and medicine of a used car dealership. It's kind of selling us something. I think life is not about resilience. It's about enduring. I think illness, having spent all these decades working on illness experience and caregiving, I think both are about enduring. But I don't mean enduring in some terrible view that um, uh, 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 just barely getting through. I mean enduring in terms of ups and downs, in terms of things that are also joyous, that are remarkable, that are small successes, like small failures. Um, but enduring is also about real failures and about problems that can't go away and can't be made better. It's about futility. It's about end of life. It's about the fact that many deaths are not good deaths, nor could they made to be good. In fact, Philip Arias, in his great book, um, The Hour of Our Death, said that the problem of modern medicine and modern behavioral science was that it was forcing people to regard death as if it had no sting. You know, my own field, uh, psychiatry has led the way. This is one of the areas where psychiatry leads the way. In DSM-5, we have just announced that from the first day of bereavement, after your parent, your spouse, your child dies, 
you have clinical depression. We used to call it grief, right? but now it's clinical depression. That's an absurdity. Actually, in some ways, it's pornographic. It really is. Um, it's deeply troubling. Uh, um, because part of enduring is enduring death, enduring loss, enduring, well, I'll, let me just tell you, out of my experience, I felt that I barely endured the last years of my wife's Alzheimer's. And I spent a lot of time with the families of Alzheimer's patients. And I think this is a widely, widely shared feeling. That it's, it's about barely enduring. And those of us who practice medicine know that in the practice of medicine, one of the big issues is how do you endure? How do you keep going? That's why all the concern with burnout. How do you keep doing it? How do you keep going in a field? So I think there's a hell of a lot to enduring, and we should try to understand it. If I bring a question to you guys, that's the question I want to bring. I want to bring that question of enduring. And I want to end on this, with this point, and then take questions. That um, our concern should be for quests for wisdom in the art of living with disease and caregiving. What are those quests for living, for the art of living with disease and caregiving? Both on the popular side, that is the family side, and the professional side. Our concern should not be with the wisdom that wisdom, I've tried to make the case here, is going to be very particular to a local world, to a particular individual. But the quests are shared. There only are a limited number of ways of being human in the world. And one of them are these quests for wisdom in the art of living. And I want to say that in your attention to illness narratives, in your attention to caregiving, that's part of what we should be distilling. What, is, what are those quests? What do we learn from those quests? What can we bring from those quests to the care that we give? It's been a privilege to talk to you tonight. Thank you very much. Well, that's a great insight and a, and a great story. And um, it, it also gets to my, the point I try to make about care receiving, that there's, you know, from an anthropological standpoint, the, um, the uh, and I've written this in several articles in the, in the Lancet and one in the New England Journal of Medicine, um, caregiving is not well modeled 
as um, a, uh, in terms of a market model, though clearly a mar the market has a great deal to do with caregiving. It's, and from an anthropological standpoint, it's best modeled as a gift exchange, as reciprocity, in which the gift of the, of the practitioner, the, the physician or nurse, or the family member who's helping is the gift of responding, doing all those things I laid out and responding. But there's a gift of the care receiver who's giving that gift of, in your case, it was actual moral solidarity together. But most of the time, it's represented by their gift of the emotions and the, and the experience that they're having. That has got to be seen as a gift that, that comes to us to, re, to be responded to. Yeah. Yes? medicine is based on English words, sentences, and paragraphs. Yeah. Uh, the Chinese language is pictures. We rely a great deal on metaphor, but you can't do it with a picture because this, you know, friendship is too handshaking. Have we, is anybody interested in analyzing how this difference in how one has a language uh, comes out in terms of uh, storytelling or yeah. That's, well, that's the question that, or comment that's important. Everything here is emphasizing on the history between the physician and the patient. Yeah. What this lead, it leads to is neglect of the physical examination. This is another way yeah, of communicating which is nonverbal, but which the patient is transfixed on. They pay much more attention to you when you're examining them than they do Absolutely. across the desk in the office. And there are all kinds of things that uh, exemplify empathy, the way you touch, the way you invade someone else's space. All these are things that are going on in their mind. Right. And unless it's going on in yours, it's going to be missed. So we all know that you can do the physical exam in such a way as to make it human, or you can do it in such a way as to make it inhuman. And that's the Opportunity. Let me just say that in uh, Chinese language has plenty of ways, and the and the pictograms in Chinese convey the same kinds of meanings we're talking about. Chinese language is filled with terminology of the richest and most sophisticated kind for interpersonal relationships and for personal experience. The 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 problems that we see today in China relate to the fact that the average primary care first visit relationship between doctor and patient lasts but three minutes. In the period of three minutes, there's no time to do more than the most perfunctory physical exam, the most perfunctory uh, 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 history. And you often see in Chinese settings, the physician begin to write the prescription as the patient enters the room. Okay? So the problem there is a, is, is a problem actually we share, but it's not as stark as that. So the question we can ask is that the average time, as I recall it, in a doctor-patient relationship in the United States is 12 minutes for a return visit. We also know that the average time from the time the doctor says to you what's wrong on the return visit, Mrs. Smith, what's happening to you, what's wrong, to the time that the medical interrogation begins is 19 seconds, okay? 
So one could say that the time structure. Yeah. That's got to do with corporate control. Yeah, well, let me, let me, let me. That, that right. is the way it developed. Yeah. It was never that way when yeah. I was practicing. But, right. This, this is the fact that we turned a social relationship and right. into a business. Yes, and this is exactly, you know, you might as well come up here and give the lecture rather than me because <laughs> this is exactly my point that the market model and the structure of the bureaucracy has taken over, so we accept this as a, as a throughput. But we can raise fundamental questions. How long does it take in a follow-up visit for a diabetic patient who has peripheral vascular disease, eye ground changes, and maybe some serious problems in, in managing the uh, uh, blood sugar levels? How long does it take to be with such a patient? Is 12 minutes sufficient? We can say that the structuring of care itself, in terms of time, may lead to bad care. It makes it difficult to have an illness narrative. It means you boil down ethnography into the eight questions that I, I gave you. Is that a, uh, even those, maybe you only get one question in, okay? Um, uh, time is a, is a fundamental issue, and we should raise that as a question. You see, if we had a more profoundly influential voice, not just the voice of medicine, but the voice of families, about the significance of uh, illness and of care. These would be the questions we would raise in the healthcare debate. What's sufficient time? Are the structures of care that we have preventing us from delivering the most humanly uh, rich and uh, successful kinds of care? So I'm, all, I'm with you entirely on this. Yes? Right. That are much more revealing than the doctor's touch. Yes. And how to reconcile the two worlds where the machines seem to know more and do better? So that's a great, another great question. Um, you know, I think of those of us who are medical educators know that uh, clinical skills are, are, are degenerating. Most young physicians don't trust the, their ability to auscultate. They have other means of determining what's happening with the heart. They, they also distrust what they can palpate. They distrust the, clinic, the, the history, et cetera. And so we can say, you know, well, what is that about? Part of it is about actual degrees of, um, of um, documentation, of evidence. And we should applaud that, because the more evidence we have, the more human care can be, not less human. Okay? the more we can get effectively at a diagnosis and at what needs to be done to respond to that diagnosis. But we carry over some practices technically in terms of um, our uh, relationships. Now, the best statement about this um, was made by Max Weber, the great German sociologist in 1920. When Weber said that the world that uh, was coming, that is the world that would be the rest of the 20th century, Weber said, would be dominated by institutions. And they would be the dominant form of life because they would have the greatest efficiency. 
they could quantify, they could generalize, and this great efficiency would come out of their rationality. They could produce a technical rationality that would infiltrate every part of life. So in the medical sphere, everything that we do would be algorithmized, could be put into an algorithm. And this technical strength would have some great qualities to it, said Weber. The ability to be more precise about what we do would take a lot of bias out of what we did. But it would end up, he said, in an iron cage of rationality. That was Weber's famous iron cage of rationality. We would find ourselves in an iron cage of technical rationality that would make it um, less feasible for spontaneity, emotion, and tradition. He meant their religion, really, to play a role in, in uh, what we did. And so what you, you just described is not just true of medicine. It's true of all of our lives. This is true of all of our lives. Again, why is anthropology useful here? Because it teaches us about social constructions. And what we should recognize is that the world of technology is also a world of social constructions. These are socially constructed um, categories based on machines, sometimes useful, sometimes not useful. When not useful, they should be challenged as such. And we should be able to remake them in some way. But we haven't, we haven't succeeded in that regard. That's why I get back to this idea of perturbing and disturbing. The kind of question you asked was really great because it perturbs and disturbs. It's not a question you seem really to ask of me because I'm 100% with you. It's what, it's what to ask about the chief of neurosurgery when you see her act in such a way as demeaning a patient. It's what to ask of the chief of neurology when you see them take care of a patient and pay no attention to the story and the background. This is one of the things that affected my own career. In 1965, I was a visiting student at the Institute of Neurology at Queen Square in London, learning how the neurological exam. And I, as, as a student there, I was given a case which I presented to a famous professor of neurology of that era. And the case was the following. It was a 23-year-old member of the British Consular Service, a young British foreign officer in Malta, who, who on the first night of his marriage, himself and his wife, both virgins, in the first act of coitus, blew out a, an AV malformation and produced a dense hemiparesis. I presented that case to Sir Dennis Williams. Sir Dennis had me do the exam, redid the neurological exam, and without another word, asked for the next patient. And since I was an American and uh, uh, I could say things that the Brits couldn't say, I said, um, I'm sorry, I don't think we're finished with this case, Sir Dennis. You know, at that point, the registrars moved away from me. You know, <laughs> moved away. And I said, yeah, you know, you know, just think of the story. What, don't we have anything to offer here? Would we stop right now with the diagnosis? Nothing, we're going to do nothing. We're going to suggest nothing to this. So that experience replicated itself in my experience of neurologists, including friends of mine, who were some of the world's great neurologists at Harvard, who wanted to help me and went out of their way early on to make the diagnosis, did amazing things at, at one of the early stages 
to come up with a diagnosis. But once the diagnosis was made, didn't have the slightest idea on what the disease was about. Had no recommendations to make to me about home care. Never mentioned the word social worker. Never said get the house ready for taking care of someone who's going to be progressively disabled. Had no sense of what the real caregiving of Alzheimer's is about, which is, if you think of it, astonishing. These are the experts in neurodegenerative diseases who simply don't have the understanding, the imagination to know what their patients are going to have to go through. The same with Sir Dennis Williams at that, in that, in that experience. My sense is the best we can do again is to perturb and disturb, not let that pass. Don't let it pass. Yeah. Yes. So I have kind of a, a policy question based on what you were saying, the difference between lay and professional caregiving. Yeah. So if we think about lay caregivers in a professional setting, so say a family member or a family yeah. unit in a hospital, yes. what are some of the things that you think the industry needs to prioritize as far as giving care to caregivers and saying, mm. say, yeah. even if it's not a burden, it's a draining experience, Another great question. Let, let me just object to one word, okay? The word industry. Okay? I, I, there's no industrial solution to this, okay? Um, that's one of the sad things is that our world has become industrial in every way. Um, when, when Helena Deutsch was trained by Freud to be his ambassadors to Boston, she said when she practiced from 1938 as a psychoanalyst till uh, the late 1970s. She said when she began her practice, it was like an artist working in an atelier. And when she finished, it was like a factory worker on the shop floor. Okay. And so that's part of what Weber said, that institutions would take over, their technical rationality would organize how we do things. So the first thing is, be careful about an industrial answer. Maybe the answer has to be so particularized and humanized that we need other terms than industrial terms for this. This is my objection to a lot of policy that sounds so inhuman, when in fact I know that so many policymakers, at least the ones I, who are friends of mine and I know, are extraordinary human beings who are so interested in, in improving care, but get caught up in their own social constructions. Okay? So now, what can we do? Well, first, we can learn from the South in this regard. We can learn from what happens in Africa what happens in, in India, what happens in China, where, where families do a lot of the caregiving. We can begin to allow families to do more caregiving in American hospitals, to participate in the care. And we don't do that. We exclude families frequently in a way that they could participate in that care. Now, now that's only part of, the, part of the answer. Another part of it is look at the way, look at where attention is focused in a hospital. Um, if you look at, if you speak to residents, they'll tell you that they want to spend more time with patients, but they can't because they've got to be at the computers. But in point of fact, we know that a lot of that computer time avoids spending time with patients. And when time is spent, it's often about scut work, not about the kinds of things I've been talking about. All right? In fact, I would say, you remember I said that medical school is also disabling. 
one of the recommendations I would have on the level of medical education is not to allow a medical student within 200 yards of a resident. Okay? <laughs> now, uh, now I, I was a resident, and many of you in the audience were residents, and you, we all know that residents, see, is like being in a concentration camp. It's like it's becoming a survivor. Okay? It's learning how to survive, how to cut every corner, because you've got to get out of the damn hospital and have a life. Okay? That's the last thing you want medical students to learn, because it undermines almost everything taught in the preclinical, or at Harvard we call them the pre-cynical years. <laughs> the cynicism comes with a hidden curriculum, which is from the residents. And I can give you case after case where students I taught, who I thought were wonderful students, and came into medicine with, with, the, with the best of values. On their rotation, let's say in a medicine service, I said by the resident, go in and take a history, come back, and help me write it up and we'll get on to the next case. Student takes 45 minutes, comes out with an incredibly rich history. The resident says, I don't want to hear it. You cannot take 45 minutes, okay? You've got 15 minutes to get in there and get out because I've got other patients here for you to see. All right? That is an unbelievably terrible message to give to a medical student. One of uh, Harvard medical students who, who had been an undergraduate who I knew was in a course with me and then had, I knew her in medical school and became a resident at one of our hospitals. She got up as an intern at three in the morning to uh, fix a technical problem that had happened with a uh, central line. And she ran down to the patient and, she, and as she ran down, the nurse said, by the way, when you're down here and you're finished with her, I've got three other problems here I've got to deal with. She had had like an hour and a half of sleep. The patient said to her, doctor, I'm having surgery in the morning. I'm so frightened. I need to speak to you about this surgery. And she said, I'm sorry. I have no time. I can't speak to you. She went out of the room, caught herself, because she's an amazing woman, caught herself, came back in, and spent 20 minutes or half an hour with that patient talking about it. Because she said to herself, what in the world happened to me? I came into medicine to do exactly this. And the structure has, has me doing things I don't want to do. She had the bravery and the, and the, and the, and the skill and the, and, 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 and the powerful inner resistance to do that. Most of us probably wouldn't have. I'm thinking back to my own internship. I probably wouldn't have, wouldn't have done that. I would have gone on to get the things done because I felt so exhausted. I think that's what makes the hidden curriculum taught by residents so dangerous. So we want caregiving modeled not just by um, uh, uh, people giving a lecture in the first few years, but in the actual care. We want the best clinicians out there modeling the best care at all levels. Let, let, let me tell you, I have given talks on caregiving at many of our country's leading medical schools. I usually begin, and in fact I did this in your Department of Medicine, I think uh, last year or the year before. I usually begin this way. I begin with a Swiftian hypothesis. Hypothesis. Remember Swift, Jonathan Swift, during the Great Irish Famine, was so upset that people were not outraged. He decided to outrage them with a suggestion. Since we're doing nothing for this famine, he said, let's eat the children. Because if we eat the children, we won't have to see them starve slowly to death. And more of that, we won't starve. We'll have something to eat. 
And people, of course, were outraged and said, oh, that's absurd, that, 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 that idea. Um, he provoked uh, 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 this response. I tried to do the same. I did this at many of your competing strong medical schools around the country. And I usually say it this way. Okay, so we, I demonstrate how little time we actually spend teaching about caregiving in the curriculum, how limited the funds are that go in to, to, to support this, how little time is, done, is given in medicine to provide care. That's what we heard over here. Too limited time to be able to do the things you should do. I said, now here's an answer for you. How about this? Let's exonerate physicians from caregiving. Let's just say medicine really has come to a point where today it has nothing whatsoever to do with caregiving. And I say this very slowly because as I get to the conclusion, a hundred hands go up, okay? A hundred hands go up with red faces, okay? <laughs> of people responding, what are you, crazy? What sort of statement is that? Caregiving is central to medicine. It's what medicine is about. It's our icon, caregiving. And then I say, gee, you know, it's really interesting you say that. How much in the way of resources go into caregiving in this medical school? And the people get a little embarrassed and they become quieter. How much time in the curriculum is devoted to this? Where's the evidence of its importance and the, you know, this, this outcry of, of, of an, annoyance with me making this uh, radical suggestion is because we ourselves are so defensive about what's happened to caregiving in, the, in, in medicine. Any other questions? Are we at an end? We, we have time for one more question. Okay. I would like to hear your view about um, concierge care since we're talking about uh, this dilemma between... Concierge care? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, uh, you know, you're, you're asking about concierge care to a guy who introduced the idea of social suffering, okay, <laughs> and works with the concept of structural violence, okay? So I, I'm not big on concierge care, okay? I mean, I'd like to see the things that occur in concierge care, they can occur, occur in all of medicine, not just to the 1%, okay? Um, so. Uh, um, my greater concern is, what about the 99%? Uh, and let me leave it at that. Thank you very much. I want to thank you all for coming to the American Medicine Rounds, and uh, we invite you to join us at the next rounds, which is going to be on February 5th. Amy Arbus, photographer, will be with us. Have a good night. Sorry?